This is Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello friends and welcome to another lock-in or perhaps lockdown on the Hop Forward podcast. This episode is called Power to the People, Not the Pubcos. No doubt if you're a brewer, you'll have a map of the local area hanging on your office wall. Now I would imagine it's adorned with those little multicoloured dots, you know the ones, the ones you buy in a pack from WH Smiths that organise all your files. Um, and it was erected back in the day your brewery was about to start trading. Hanging on that wall, this was to be your warm room map, your strategy for world domination, or at least domination of Barnsley or Peterborough. Anyway, this map with its red and yellow dots was an indication of all the pubs in your area that you were going to sell your precious golden liquid into. Only the map is seldom used these days, not because technology has superseded it, but because it transpired that many of those little circles represented tied public houses owned by large pub companies who won't even entertain taking your beer on, let alone giving you a fair price for it. A joke because I myself had this map hanging on the brewery office wall. But this is a story I've heard all too often in my visits to breweries across the country. The history of pub ownership is a long complex one, as you will no doubt hear from today's episode with long-standing publican Mark Dodds. Mark, who once ran The Sun and Doves in Camberwell, South London, which was Time Out magazine's runner-up for Best Bar of the Year in 1996, as well as winning a whole string of other awards, is no stranger to the Thai pub system. Having witnessed firsthand the effects of the corporate boot, including being evicted and declared bankrupt, Mark has been passionately pursuing the People's Pub Partnership, the dream of an ethical and sustainable pub company that gives full autonomy to licensees, whilst maintaining a clear set of values that allow the publican to reinvest in the pub and pour pint after pint of perfectly kept beer. (laughs) It sounds utopian, doesn't it? Pubs have been slowly but surely closing their doors for one last time. And while some have found a new lease of life, from local breweries taking them on to communities rallying together to take on the pub as a community project, many have sadly shut up shop only to become a metro supermarket or convert into flats. And with pubs literally battening down the beer cellar hatches, and front doors firmly closed for who knows how long due to the global pandemic that is sweeping across the world, how many of our pubs will be wiped off the face of the earth over the coming months and years? Because if the coronavirus doesn't kill the vibrant independent pub trade, then perhaps pub companies will. However, it's not all doom and gloom. If this extended period, however long it lasts, enables us to do anything, my hope is this... In the stilling of landlords moving inventory around stockrooms, 
the sound of silence from cooling systems taking a much needed rest from chilling beer cellars and the hush that usually only comes once the last patrons have left in the early hours of the morning as their jubilant renditions of Grandmaster Flash's white lines fade into the distance, perhaps, just perhaps, we can imagine a new, bold, brighter future, a brave new world for one of Britain's oldest institutions, the pub. And when this is all blown over, I'll head down to my local, have a nice cold pint and drink to that. Speaking of which, if you haven't checked it out already, make sure you head over to the winchester.hotford.beer and sign up for our seven-day mini-podcast series on Weathering the Storm. These are some mini-episodes exclusive to the people on our mailing list that not only give you some ideas to implement during this time for your business, but also some personal development for you. So make sure you check that out at thewinchester.hotford.beer. Also, follow us at Hot Four Beers on all the socials and make sure you connect with us. Subscribe to the podcast and share it with any fellow brewery or beer professional you may know. There's still a lot of people in the industry that haven't heard of it yet, and I'd love to get as many beers to ears as possible. And finally, given that we're all heading online for some time, if you need help with your branding, your marketing, your website, e-commerce development, whatever, hit me up at nick at hotford.beer and I'll see what I can do to help you out and hot forward during this period. So let's head over to the virtual pub for a virtual pint with virtually the most knowledgeable publican I've probably ever virtually met, Mark Dodds. Vision, dreams of passion And all the while I think of you A very strange reaction Today on the podcast I'm joined by uh, long-time publican Mark Dodds. Hello. Hi uh, Nick, how are you doing? I'm alright, thanks. I, I would do the cheers thing, but obviously you know, yeah, it, it's all social distancing so let, let's do it virtually, okay? <laughs> so cheers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so what 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 beer have you just cracked open yeah i've cracked open a calico session pale ale ah happy days sobbery so i don't know anything about that it's, it's part of beer 52 deliveries i think i was saying in the preamble to this when we were catching up and finding out who we are that um i was drinking a beer from i've taken it out of the room now gypsy hill brewing which is uh a brewery i don't know them but they're, they're about two miles from where i live in London, although I'm not in London, I'm in Belford in North Northumberland now, hiding in uh, in seclusion. Uh, yeah, I've got a uh, Utopian Brewing um, British Lager. So I got I got this sent in the post as a care package actually from uh, one, one, of the, one of the people. Yeah, I know one of the people that listens to the podcast called Ruth. Hello, if you're listening, Ruth. Hello, Ruth. Um, basically said, you know, we, we want to send you some beer for free. So I was like. Running a podcast is finally paying off. If any of my other listeners are out there wanting to send me beer for free, uh, just email me at nick at hotford.beer. <laughs> Does Ruth work with Utopia then? Or she yeah, just yeah, did... no, she, she's, uh, I think she's head of sales. Um, and then Richard, who's one of the directors, um, wrote to me saying, have some beer. So big, big toast to Ruth and Richard. Very good. So, yeah. yeah. Well done. So, Mark, why, why don't you tell us a little yeah. bit about who you are and your involvement over the years in the industry? Right, okay. Um, so, my, my, my background, I, I'm getting on a little bit now, I'm 61, and my background is uh, was originally in uh, photography and design, and um, 
and I worked in pubs all the way through college and uh, I like pubs I think the way many people like pubs they're part of my cultural experience of growing up in Britain mm. and um, over various different career changes I uh, I studied I, sorry I studied in Manchester I did photography in Manchester and um, and worked in, quite, in a few bars there and an extremely busy restaurant called Steak and Kebab back in the late 70s mm. Which, um, which is a defining part of my life because it was an incredibly busy place and steak and kebab is a bit pejorative now, but at the time it was exotic. And uh, they used to do about 360 covers on a Saturday night and it was incredibly busy and they sold very good quality food and they did a, a wide menu with vegetarian food. So it was kebabs and steaks and it ranged from vegetarian to heavy meat, big T-bone steaks. And it was a little bit, it catered for everybody. And... Um, they had an extraordinarily broad wine list with uh, ranging from Liefraumilch to uh, Burgundies and uh, and Bordeaux. They had an extremely good, good quality Bordeaux. So it was a really weird place in a way because it was very good value and it had extraordinary wines, which was very cheap, and it had a, a small range of beers. Uh, and um, and it, it made me, speaking of utopia beers, it made me feel like this is utopia. This is what, this is, this environment this busy catering environment is exciting. It's fantastic. It's full of young people, old people, all kinds of people mixing. Um, and it made, it, it set me, I took it as, a, it, it was a part-time job and it became a full-time job. I worked there for two years. Mm. And it set me off about my expectations for everywhere, everywhere else I ever worked because it was just good. Every, anybody who's worked in really, really busy bars, pubs, restaurants will know that feeling that good, catering does where you loads of people are happy you get through an incredibly busy shift you think it's so busy you're never going to get to the end get to the end it's brilliant and everything in my life is it sounds a bit bizarre but everything in my life has emanated from there really because the owners made a few key mistakes that i've seen repeated again and again and again this is relevant to the whole thing about the pub sector now where they made promises that they didn't keep they lost loads of really good quality staff that got bored because they didn't move on fast enough and all kinds of bits and pieces like that. Anyway, I moved to London after that and then continued working. I did a bit of photography, a bit of graphics, continued working um, in restaurants and then catering became my career. I ended up running a nightclub for several years in the West End in Mayfair where I hired and fired everybody from the cooks to the doorman to, uh, to, to the whole lot. Uh, where the, uh, yeah, where the head chef was uh, the first woman ever trained by Raymond Blanc, um, who I, who became my partner for five years, and um, and at that time I became a landscape designer. Left there, had, having done everything I needed to do in catering, uh, went to Kew Gardens, studied there, and became a landscape designer. And then five years down the line, we split up, and um, I. I started living in southeast London instead of living in the West End, which is where I'd always worked and um, socialised. And I realised there were no decent pubs, bars, restaurants, cafes, anything in southeast London um, because I was hanging out there. And I, I met another woman. <laughs> I met another woman who had a local pub in Camberwell called The Sun and Doves, which was a massive boozer, quite a big pub, right on the corner of Coltarbor Lane and 
and the, and the road which leads up to King's College Hospital, which is Lambeth's biggest employer. Mm. Um, and it was a pub I'd driven by or walked by hundreds of times before and never noticed because it was set back behind, off the street and, I, and it was behind a tree and it was quiet. And I went there f- with her as a regular for a year and started thinking, at this time I was landscaping and I was doing a big project for Gardener's World Live. And at that time I started, I was thinking, this pub's really quiet all the time and I'm doing all this work here in the summer in the garden, um, planning planning a garden. Um, I must find out what's going on with this pub and why it's so quiet. And um, and I discovered, that this was 1995, uh, yeah, 1994, sorry. And I discovered that it was um, about to go on the market um, by a company called Entrepreneur, and um, it was one of the one of the early Tide pubs that was on the market after the after the beer orders. Yeah. So I basically I'd had a career in create in catering and design and gardening building, um, with pubs as just part of that, and then me, finding this pub made me rethink everything I'd done before, and think I can't find. Tell you what triggered it off. What got me into being a full-time publican was um, I, I used to live in Newcross Gate, which is southeast London, SE14, and um, I travelled to Westbourne Grove on a not infrequent basis to go and have a drink because there were no pubs. Westbourne Grove, This is if anybody doesn't know London, that's probably about eight miles, and it's on the other side of the river, and it's to a trendy part of London at the time. Because the pubs there, were, there was a, there was some decent pubs there, had a good reputation, and I was sitting there in a pub called the Westbourne, one evening, enjoying. I, I like the whole thing about the atmosphere of pubs, and uh, and I and I spotted a guy that I knew from Southeast London. I was like, "What the hell are you doing over here?" And he was like, "What the hell are you doing over here?" And we were both saying, "Well, all the pubs are shit," and that that started me thinking, "I really should do something myself and use all the experience I've got." And so I made inquiries about that pub, about the Sun and Doves, found it was about to come on the market, and um, wrote a business plan and ended up ended up taking a lease on the pub, a tied lease on the pub, and um, and then spent the next 16 years finding out all about the pub sector basically when you're a tied publican and yep. uh, so i signed the lease took it on december 1995 and then in may it was in may 1996 it was nominated timeout bar of the year that nominated we got runner-up and it started getting a load of awards and so on and stuff because it was basically a very good pub and um don't want to make that sound easy to do, but when you know what you're doing, it's not complicated to do. Yep. And uh, and I thought, well, this is good. I, I had no money to set it up. Anyway, that's that's my background. So I, I, I took on a Tide pub, made it really busy, I completely transformed it into a sticky floor, horrible pink walled disco <laughs> boozer. It, it was a shithole. It was an absolute shithole um, into a, lead, a leading pub at the time, an influential leading pub, a sort of pioneering pub. It was called the Pioneering Pub on Cold Harbour Lane. And mm. uh, and so a whole bunch of things escalated from that. One is, right, I did it because I like pubs. I could, I could put together all my experience of design, catering, 
friendliness, socializing, everything into one place and make a decent make a decent place that I wanted to go to that I knew other people would like to go to and it all worked basically in you know in a way it's not rocket science if it's good and you cater to a broad range of tastes it's it's going to work and that that applies in all it applies now it's, it, nothing changes in this yep. people enjoy socializing and if you give them good stuff they will they will take it up and use it and um so what I learned fairly soon was that setting up your own pub as a as a tied lessee of a pub company who you have to buy beer from as part of your lease arrangement um, doesn't really stack up financially because you don't make any money because the beer is so expensive and then when you have when you've learned how to run your business properly your first rent review comes along and then your business is, is quite busy and then there's stuff you at rent review and then that eats up what profit you were beginning to make mm. and so on and so it, most tenants go through this kind of cycle of uh, working really hard to make a busy business, being caught out by a rent review, not understanding enough about the uh, the dynamics of the pricing on the wholesale uh, beer. They start making, when they realize they're not making enough profit out of their beer because the wholesale prices are too high and they can't charge enough retail price without getting rid of their customers, they start making decisions like, oh, I'll, I'll charge more for food or I'll charge more for cocktails or I'll charge more for wine or soft drinks or whatever to try to make up the margins. And then then publicans end up, tied publicans at least, end up running their businesses as a kind of series of lost leaders of beer, which justifies their having a business which and trying to encourage customers to buy the stuff which isn't beer, which makes more, more margin. And... It's, it's nonsense and you, it prevents them from being uh, running their business the way a pub needs to run yeah you can't make rational decisions um i think i'd posted uh, a tweet about the episode i did with ian fozard from roosters Brewing right. and yeah. um, and seba and then you responded um in light of something he said saying i'll, I'll quote it out it says 25 years of profiteering rent and supply prices epidemic in the Tide Pubco cartel after decades of poor estate management has devastated pubs, social well-being yeah. and Britain's sense of place. And I was like, if that's not an invitation to do a podcast, <laughs> then I don't know what is. I mean, like, that, yeah, that's can, can you unpack that? And what are the fundamental issues with Pubcos and what, why are they so bad for independent brewers and independent yeah. bars and pubs? Okay, I'll try and keep it succinct. So broadly... So the 1989 beer orders were a huge uh, historic uh, time, a line in the sand for the pub sector, where the Thatcher government tried to break the monopoly of large brewers who had big regional monopolies. So I, I don't know the detail of it all, but basically Bass had half, had a fifth of the country, Scottish Newcastle had a fifth and so on, and, and the beer orders were brought in to break up the... Uh, these huge brewers who had massive estates of pubs. Yeah. Um, this is like the big six, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, none of whom exist now. Um, and I think the, so the idea was to give the consumer more choice and better quality and to stimulate innovation. And um, I believe the legislation was generally well-intentioned. Right. So prior to the beer orders, there was a number of really big brewers running huge numbers of pubs around Britain supplying their beer 
to their pubs, to the customer, to the public, like almost like um, beer tankers just pumping beer out into the population. And, and there were regional monopolies where you could only get Whitbread beer somewhere or Scottish Newcastle and another place and so on. And, um, and those, big, those big brewers made so much money out of not trying very hard to do anything because people were just using pubs all the time that they were lazy. And I think I mentioned fat, lazy, couldn't give a toss about anything. The, the quality of the beer was going down. They were making industrial beer. Um, and I think the move was really pushing towards lager always. So cask had gone and, and so on. I think, you know, camp, campaign for ill comes into all of this because they, they, they came out of, uh, prior to the beer orders, out of yeah. all of this trying to, to preserve cask ale. And basically the pub sector was full of run down, not very good pubs selling industrial beer. Um, but they were busy and it was all making a lot of money. So that was all broken up and then more or less overnight, but in the space of a few years, um, all these brewers were obliged to sell huge parts of their pub estates to the market. And of course the market became people who used to work for the brewers buying up pubs and setting up pub companies, um, which all looked good in itself, but all these pubs had tied tenants sitting in them. So there's this bigger state of laziness going on right across Britain. And instead of it innovating and, uh, and turning into a wonderful, diverse, pluralistic market, it turned into, over years, uh, a similar number of huge pub companies owning the pubs that had been bought from the brewers, um, who then became a different kind of monopoly, who used their buying power in that they owned these, I'm not, I'm not explaining this for real, they owned huge estates of property, but there was this historical tie that came with every pub that they bought. Every pub that they bought had as part of its kind of lease. I don't never really understood this directly because the brewers owned the pubs and the tenants ran the pubs and paid low rent for the privilege of selling the beer. The beer was not cheap, but they sold the beer, they lived in the pub, they could make money out of selling the beer, they could make provision for their retirement, and um, which they did. And they would buy homes in Spain and Portugal, all kinds of places all over the country. And then they would sell or move on, they would move, they would move on from their pub. So all that ended with the beer orders and the property ended up being owned by pub companies who had no direct brewing interest, not by and large, who were then in a position because they had hundreds and thousands of pubs to go to the brewers who used to own the pubs and say, right, we've got this enormous estate. We'll buy your beer and distribute it through our estate using the historic tie to oblige our tenants to buy beer from us. Um, but we want you to give us the best price possible. And if you don't supply us with the best price possible, we'll go to one of the other brewers which stimulated, as far as I can gather, all of the original brewers to get out of brewing because it meant they, their profits weren't so easy to make. And it meant that thousands of pubs became owned by pub co's run by tenants buying expensive wholesale beer from their pub co's. Mm. 
selling the beer. So basically, not not a lot changed. They ended up the tenants ended up selling that beer at higher prices than they would have done otherwise because the pubcos were putting a margin on everything, and uh, and the actual product mix didn't change that much because. Um, they were all selling global lagers. So, you know, it's all like big, big business stuff. And there's nothing much to eulogize about it all because it's been a bad story all the way through. So the, pro the proposition was with the beer orders that thousands of entrepreneurial people would come in to the pub sector, seeing opportunities in individual pubs to become publicans and run those pubs as decent businesses. Uh, there would most likely be people local to the pubs so they would know what the local people, uh, local customers would want. They would understand how to run businesses because they're entrepreneurial. They would do good deals with their landlords, with the pub companies, because that's what you do in business. And um, and it would innovate and make the pub sector different. But in practice, what the pub companies did over the last 25, 30 years is um, is continue to restrict the the product range of beers. Um, they, and they do that by price largely. I mean, you'll know a lot about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the market has tried to fight against the inevitability of the pubcos dominating everything. Um, but the, the bottom line is, so back to the, the tweet, there was a lazy pub sector, tens of thousands of pubs ripe for the picking, all of which were run down and poorly maintained anyway, by and large, which 25 years later, however many, 30 years later now, still have not had substantial refurbishment, still have not. So the, most of the national pub estates in this time, far from many pubs having closed and got being turned to alternative use anyway, most of, most of the pubs in, in Britain have not had substantial fundamental refurbishment to their services and, you know, gas, electricity, um, drainage and all the rest of it since the 70s or 80s. My word. But, but what has happened is they've been redecorated and they've been made to look good. The whole sector is based upon the idea that you can have a low-cost entry as a publican into an entrepreneurial opportunity to take on a pub. You know, Enterprise Inns, Punch Taverns, they were, and all the others, Admiral, Green King, Marston's, they've all advertised their pubs under the same way. They say, you, you can run this fantastic pub. And people who are not necessarily publicans or licensees think great opportunity i'll go in take this on as a low-cost entry into running your own business now what that means is you don't spend a lot of money you've got you've, you've got a pub you're you're i did it i did it in 1995 it wasn't marketed like that then i took on a pub that needed a quarter of a million quid spending on it i did a i did a, a very detailed business plan i worked out how much the the stripping it all out with costs and rebuilding the the boiler, putting new boilers and heating and everything like this in. And in the end, I couldn't raise that kind of money. And I did it on 45 grand. So what I did was turn a pub that looked shit into a really nice looking pub, but I didn't put new heating in. I didn't put new insulation in. I didn't put double glazing in. I didn't. And this is what publicans do. You don't, don't replace the boiler. So I had a potted and boiler, which was probably 30 years old when I signed the lease. And I eventually changed that boiler. Um, it took me, I don't know, 12 years probably to be able to afford to do it. And I put in a very efficient boiler. Mm. But I spent 12 or 13 years running a pub that cost 
something like 4,000, 5,000 quid a year more than I anticipated would because the boiler was knackered and so on. And this is what publicans do everywhere. And so this, the, the, the result of the beer orders over a period of 30 years is you have a, a, a national pub estate. If you just regard the national, all of the pubs in the country as part of the national pub estate, you have a national pub estate which is largely run down, um, dull, not fit for purpose because the buildings haven't been refurbished properly, incapable of competing against even coffee outlets because <laughs> because they're so run down and old, the pubs are, and uh, selling pretty much the same products wherever you go, apart from, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a mixed market, a complicated market, apart from where... Uh, Resistance has, has been popping up to all of this, which is in the form of micro pubs. And throughout all of that time, there have been large managed chains of pubs yeah, um, yeah. by people like Mitchells and Butlers and um, Weatherspoons, dare I say. And, you know, there are a bunch of large, large outfits there who run pretty, by, by general standards of pubs, pretty decent standard pubs. Um, but they're back, they're, they're well they're well funded and uh, their business and they tend to be much more expensive than the other pubs as well and their business is to um, serve people to a, a moderately decent level of of, of service and uh, quality uh, the benchmark being the rubbish pubs which are the <laughs> yeah the benchmark being the rubbish pubs it, it, it's it, I, you know this is so pejorative to say this my my problem is the standards of catering in pubs in Britain it, are just not high enough overall. And when you can go to a Weatherspoons pub almost anywhere in the country and by and large get better quality beer and by and large get slightly better service than you might do in most other pubs in the area, that's a pretty low benchmark mm. for, quality, for what quality is. And, um, you know, I've got why a do you think that it, Why do you think that is? I think it's because the majority of pubs in Britain are run by there to any statement that I make like this, it's a sweeping it is a generalization. It's not a sweeping generalization, but there are always loads of examples that contradict this, that prove that disprove my generalization. But by and large, the majority of pubs in Britain are run by people who are inexperienced and undercapitalized and undertrained and don't know enough about what they're doing. Um and that they tend to be tied publicans, pardon me, who have been who have come into the pub sector as a result of. I mean, right, I was, I was a bit like that in 1995. I was a bit naive, but I did at least I had run, you know, I had run a nightclub for a few years, and I had managed a couple of restaurants, and I did know what I was doing. Um, I was new to business, but most people who come into the pub sector have got no catering business experience whatsoever, and the catering business is the most difficult business it's the most retail catering pubs are one of the most complicated retail spaces you can imagine because your customers your shoppers are there for hours and you've got to keep them entertained you've got to give them good service and all the rest of it and to do it well you've got to know a whole lot of stuff and most so most pubs are run by people who's enough who are just not experienced enough the industry itself um, is divided. Say, I don't know the figures exactly. Say there are forty thousand pubs. This is not. This is not exact. 
Roughly 20,000 of them are tied. Roughly 20,000 of them are owned by large companies who run big estates, who employ all their staff directly and supply them with their goods and wares and so on. Then amongst that, there's an unknown percentage of what we culturally in Britain consider to be the traditional British pub. And I, I suspect there's probably five or seven percent. It's a very small number. It, it's quite a lot of pubs overall, but it's a very small number spread out across all of them, mm. which are run by, say, the traditional licensee couple um, who are dedicated to serving customers in the best possible way. And they're the mine hosts and they're idiosyncratic and they decorate their own places and they're really interested in the beer and the quality of the food and everything else. They do their own thing. Some of them might be just, just a corner pub that just does beer, some of the wet lead, some might be really good quality food. There's a whole panoply of different styles within that, but they are not, so they're the, they're the pubs which culturally we tend to think of as the ideal pub and that international, internationally people think of as the, the, the wonderful thing about British pubs. But the fact is the majority of pubs don't meet those standards. They, they are not... They're not, they're not brilliant. Mm. And, and, it, and it's largely because of the pub companies. The pub, pub companies came to the market, took up a huge part of the pr proportion of the property. Um, they've, they've shrunk in size over the last 15 years because, yeah, since 2000, well, it's, it's just over 10 years, really, since the crash, because um, they've been shedding pubs. They've been shedding about 1,000 pubs a year, like clockwork, every year, because their real purpose is has become property... Um, Asset retail asset conversion specialists. They're not pub, they're not pub companies. They're 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 PLCs that own large amounts of property that they can lease to individuals to run as pubs, and they can oblige those lessees to buy beer at profiteering inflated prices through their supply chain, and make a load of money out of the back of the tenants selling their beer whilst the pubs are inevitably run, being run into the ground through lack of maintenance, through lack of fundamental refurbishment that they need, to at some point, inexorably, the pub will fail forever, and it'll be too expensive for anybody to come along and take it on as a new lease, uh, because they'll, they'll realise in order to turn it into a viable pub again, they're going to spend 300,000 quid, and it's just they're never going to make that money back, and at which point the pub code just puts it on the market as an alternative, uh, suitable for alternative use. Yeah. The majority of the pub estate is, is tied up like that. And, you know, our experiences, our experiences, people who are customers of pubs, our cultural experience is that all, this has happened in a relatively short period of time, 30 years, but in terms of our life experience, it's taken a long time because a bunch of teenagers growing up in England, in Britain, in the 70s, there were pubs in every corner, and you you would almost inevitably have part of your experience as going to a pub and going to pubs regularly, meeting your friends there, even as underage drinkers. That barely exists anymore, and that's partly because in this period of time, it's largely because in this period of time, the number of pubs has shrunk dramatically. There have been, there have been habits, change, changing habits and so on, but the, the accessibility of pubs has changed, they become they've become more expensive, more exclusive, um, less attractive at the same time. The paradox is, I know loads and loads of kids. When I say kids, I mean 17, 18, 20 year olds um, through my through my sons, who don't like pubs. 
but it's not because they're expensive. They don't like pubs because they think they're shitholes, right? They just mm. they don't like them. And they go to Weatherspoons because they're cheap. They still want to socialise. I, I, I got I got friends who who want to go to coffee shops and whatever as well. But but they they want to do that. But they just don't find pubs are are um, sympathetic, welcoming environments anymore. And they're not by and large. So. It sounds dystopian and awful, doesn't it? Well, uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm nearly forty, and you know, I I in the township I grew up um, on the north of Sheffield, you know, I, I remember growing up, um, and yeah, it seemed like there was a pub practically on every street corner, and yeah. you know, my my brother was my older brother, you know, he he'd go out to some of these pubs and he'd come back the next day. He was underage as well, but a year or two shy of the border. Um, yeah. but he'd come back talking about the Newcastle Brown Ale he'd been drinking I was like that sounds amazing whatever that is you know and oh. then um, yeah one, one by one you know they become a, a, a Chinese restaurant a, a, one just gets turned into a house and they all slowly but surely start to disappear you know and as a musician as well you know for myself that is um, you know I'd, I'd, I did gigs in some of these places and, yeah. and it was good thing to, to, to see them go mm. Um in a capitalist society, and I'm I'm not wholly knocking capitalism here because there's an argument for it and against it. Um, you know, how can independent free houses ever compete with these large corporations that own vast estates? Because they're they're evidently, from what you're saying, doing damage to the image of a public house. You know, um, yeah. and, and and a whole bunch of other issues throughout the supply chain as you know we talked about before we hit record about you know brewers um struggling yeah uh, and you were saying about um you know people running um pub businesses just not making any money you know it's everyone seems to be sort of fighting quote unquote the man like how can we ever compete and and do, do you ever do you see the tide turning i mean in in light of the coronavirus outbreak as well mm. you know like w- what's the hope going forward for the british pub because there, there must be a hope there somewhere because obviously we, we've seen a, a whole load of breweries you know um spring to life over the last yeah. 10 years well okay so it, i mean i think it's a really fascinating time the last the last tw- 10 years particularly been really interesting because i think there's been an idea which you start to see in the mainstream press, which is peppered with different kinds of stories, but there's been an idea that this, this beer revolution uh, is made, and, and, and of course many many beer writers will support this as well, with with plenty of justification, that there's, there's, there's never been a better time to enjoy beer now in Britain, than it, in Britain than there is now. There's never been a better time before to enjoy beer than there is now in Britain, because of this explosion of, of brewers. And you can't really argue against that because it's true that there are loads of caveats to this. And well, my, my first caveat on that is that you can't get most of this beer in most of the pubs. Um, a counter to that one then is, well, uh, there's, there is evolution in the pub sector and that is uh, evident in brewery taps opening all over the show and um, micro, micro pubs particularly. Um, this is all signs of a healthy, a healthy pub sector, a healthy brewing sector. Now, that has merit as well. That, that, that argument has merit. That, that observation has merit as well. But the problem is 
Now, I characterize it like this. Most of the pubs, most of these, I know, I know from being deeply involved in the pub sector for a long time now, that those brewery taps and micro, micro pubs are a symptom of a problem. They're not evidence of they they are they're evidence of evolution in a very in a very limited way. They're limited. They're evidence of evolution because there's no other there's nowhere else that the beer can be sold. Mm. Because the majority of pubs are can't buy those beers because they're tied they're run by tied publicans who can't buy them because their supply chain is restricted by the pub committee, or the other pubs again part of the majority are owned by large large chains, large groups who don't take small brewers on because the small brewers can't supply the don't have the capacity to supply to the entire estate. And I presume, I don't know the dynamics of these large companies, but I presume it's too much hassle for them to arrange lo general local supply chain stuff. And there will be exceptions to that. There are always exceptions to all these. I'm sure yep. there are Mitchells and Butler's pubs where the managers have got autonomy to buy one, one cast line out or one keg line out and buy local. I'm sure that, that, that that's probably bound to happen. But overall, it, overall, the really good quality small brewers don't get access to the market. They don't get access to customers. So microbubs open up and brewers understand that. And whether, if they've got the space and they're good enough for what they're doing, they, they're successful enough for what they're doing, they make enough money and they understand the business side of planning well enough, they'll open up a brewery tap. And, you know, that's what happens. Now, Many, many places around the country, there are a dearth now because so many, so many traditional purpose-built pubs, we call them purpose-built pubs, typically Victorian, but through all, through all the decades ever since, Edwardian, you know, there, there are estate pubs from the 70s and the 60s in Britain, which, some of them which are very good. They've largely, huge numbers of, numbers of those have closed. And very often you'll find a micropub popping up in a place where there were where there was two purpose-built pubs that had a ballroom, that had a function room, that had a kitchen, that had a hospitality suite, that had a public bar, and a, uh, a saloon bar, and so on. And that that is now an Italian furniture shop, or it's a, <laughs> it's a block of flats, or it's a as you say Chinese Chinese whatever whatever it doesn't matter. They're not pubs anymore. And the terrible thing is that the the, 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 the I think, it's a, I think it's a very simple reality, although people have argued with me against this altogether, because there is an attitude that the pubs are shit, they deserve to close. Now, they were shit, and they closed because of what happened to them, because of the way they were irresponsibly owned and run and managed in the tenure of pub companies who are there to basically asset strip the national pub estate. My point being is that the purpose-built pubs they were, they were built in a vernacular way, many of these pubs, where traditional brewers had big estates and they wanted more outlets for their beer. So they would, they would build pubs that were purpose-built in communities from Victorian era onwards particularly. And they knew what worked. And that's the vernacular. They would, they would have a function suite. They would have, they would, and they would provide a whole load of built-in facilities mm. that enabled those pubs to cater to all kinds of different occasions, right? <clears throat> excuse me and what was so amazing about those pubs and this is not in some sort of romantic hindsight that never really existed and not all pubs were like this but they could literally do weddings bar mitzvahs, funerals wakes 
theatres, productions, music, or whatever, what is designed in, and very often do food as well, without interfering, without one of those things interfering with another function, because they were designed to be multi-functioning pubs, purpose-built. Micropubs can't do that. They might serve fantastic beer. The, the majority of tired pubs now don't do that anymore because in, increased standards of health and safety compliance and um, you know fire standards and all the rest of it have meant that typically a ballroom or a function room upstairs has been closed off. Yep. Because making the fire escape um, fireproof is too costly, so the tenants take... <laughs> It's so sad. So they, te- they, they, they just go, we'll close it off then. And then 30 years down the line, 20 years down, 15 years down the line, there's a potential revenue income stream up there not being delivered because they can't afford to have their function room in use. Then new tenants come along. It's not a function room anymore. It's just a room upstairs. And then eventually the pub fails because it hasn't got enough investment put into it and uh, it gets sold for alternative use. And then a micropub gets set up. When what the neighbourhood really needs still, because human beings are still the same, still needs a place that can do weddings, bar mitzvahs, and funerals, and cradle to grave servicing the local, yeah, servicing the local community, mm. and that's what, that that is largely gone across our entire culture now, and there is there's still need for it, because the the problem is I say there's still need for it. It's difficult to prove that because when it's not there, what okay. <clears throat> When I saw my pub, the Sun and Doves in Cold Harbour Lane, which was one, the one I used to go to with my partner, my girlfriend Louise at the time, I said to a whole bunch of people, "Where do you go in Where do you go out in Southeast London?" And they would go, "Well, we don't go out in Southeast London, do we? Because it's shit. Everywhere, everywhere, is, everywhere is rubbish." These conversations still go on now. And I go, "Okay, well, what about this pub called the Sun and Doves? What if what if I got this pub called the Sun and Doves and I turned it into a really nice place like the Westbourne in in Westbourne Grove?" They go, oh, what's the point of doing that? No one will go to it. So I said, well, why wouldn't they go to it? Because you just said, this, you just said, you don't go out in South East London because there's nowhere to go to. And they go, yeah, I know, but if it would work, somebody would have done it already, wouldn't they? And I go, well, no. But what makes you think, what makes you think you're different? Why, why if you did it, would it, would it work? And I go, well, I, it would work because I always go to places three, four, five miles away from where I live. And I would much rather go on my doorstep. Why wouldn't you rather do that? So quite a lot of people were skeptical about it. And when I opened this pub, they were there. And they were all like, what a fantastic place. We never knew it could be like this. And the place was like really, really busy very quickly. And this is what happens everywhere. Or I, I, I've never found an example where it doesn't happen. Everywhere, a formerly purpose-built pub is run into the ground and becomes, a, a, you know, a basket case suitable for alternative use when it by mistake doesn't get turned into alternative use but becomes a pub again and the people who run it are professionals they understand the catering world and they understand how to they, they, you know they're interested in beer and products and all the rest of it and they, they you know they've got to be sensitivity about the decoration and all the rest of it they do their pub bam it's busy again it's not it's not complicated what is lacking in the market <clears throat> in order to prove my principle my, my point here is that there's not enough people with capital in the market who, who I want to say in the market, who are looking for pubs to run as, as businesses for themselves, as their own business, who want to take that kind of challenge on. Because most people are in the, most publicans are in the market looking for a pub to run, who know what they're doing, 
you, I see you could say inverted commas, they're kind of tr more traditional publicans, but they know the business and they will find a pub where the lease is being sold on and it, it won't be, a, sorry, it will not be a tied pub. They'll try, to try and find a tied, free of tied, free of tied pub. And they, they'll find an existing business, like, like they'll find an existing business and buy that and improve it and run it. And the majority of tied pubs which come onto the market are no longer, no, no one's buying tied, why would, no one buys tied leases anymore. Why would they? Because they're, they're not worth anything. Tenants are trapped there. They can't sell the leases because nobody's going to buy them because they're in rundown premises, and there's a bit of a reputation going on now. And the only people, the only the only hope for those pubs, is for someone with a plenty with with a lot of capital to come along, buy the freehold, and instead of letting it turn into a block of flats or into a a, a co-op local shop, turn it back into a pub again. So I've got, I've got two questions then. Um, what's the future for the pub company? Yeah. Um, and changing tax slightly, like what do you think of micro pubs? Because, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love micro pubs. There are loads in Sheffield where I live. Yeah. And they're absolutely fantastic. Um, but in, in some ways, I mean, that they are, micro pubs are very wet led, aren't they? You know, that's essentially what yeah. it is. It's, 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 um, Quite often, it's beer enthusiasts that um, want to deliver great beer, and they generally do, at least around Manic of the Woods, uh, de deliver great Same beer. Um, but I sometimes think they're a little bit like the person that buys an airship and a pizza oven. And, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to gonna make pizzas i love pizza i'm gonna make pizzas and do all these events and then after a couple of years of going out to another sunday or saturday or sunday event it's like i sold eight pizzas today you know and it's just kind of like why on earth did i do this you know what what's i guess the question is what's the long-term future of the pub co and what's the long-term future of the micro pub well i think that that's 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 that they are two good questions and as you rightly put them together um Again, okay, to just grotesquely generalise, the future of the pub codes, the tied pub companies, is if if any right, if anybody out there is nerdy, wants to go and look at their at the history of the pub codes over the last ten years, you can go to all their published accounts and you can see all of this happening. The estate size is diminishing constantly. And the, the logical consequence of all of that is they're going to wind up and go at some point. You know, the, the pubs will, st there will still be properties that are trading as pubs out of all of that. But at some point, the pub codes simply won't be viable at any, at any, in any way, shape or form. And we're, we're, we're not far away from it now with Punch and Patreon and uh, Patron Capital, sorry, and... Uh, and you know the way the Marsons been selling off. They've all been chunking off loads of loads of estates. Marsons and, and Heineken and um, and Green King, of course, being brewers as well as pub owning companies. Um, Punch Admiral and um, EI Group, once formerly Enterprise, just pubs. Roughly a thousand pubs a year over the last twelve or thirteen years have been going. It takes a long time to get rid of 30,000 pubs, you know? It takes 30 years to get rid of them all, mm. but that's what's happening. They will all go. 
Microprobes are great. I go with everything you suggest there. You know, it's unfair to say they're not sustainable, but they cater to a very small cross-section of the population, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Microprobes, by and large, by definition, you know, for heaven's sake, they're small businesses that don't provide the opportunity for enough income for more than one or two people to make a sustain, sustainable existence out of them. Um, that it's just that they're small businesses and, and they're run by generally one or two people, uh, maybe with a few, a few part-time staff occasionally filling in. <coughs> and that in itself is, is kind of fragile because as long as those people are running the pub, the micropub, it's fine, but at some point they want to retire or give it up. Well, when that's that the point happens, I made about the pizza oven. You know, it's it's that thing of um, if you've ever read the E Myth by Michael Gerber, you know, he, he talks about um, the difference between a, a technician and an entrepreneur. Like people generally think an entrepreneur is someone that runs their own business, but not an entrepreneur is someone who has the technical skills of running a business. And what you get with a lot of technicians, i.e. people that are either brewers or they like beer or, or whatever, is they are that. They are, they are technicians. They know the technical work, but they don't often know the entrepreneurial work. So they, they're yeah. overcome with, as he puts it in the book, an entrepreneurial seizure. It's like, I, I don't want to work for the man. I, I can be the man. And they end up, you know, running their own brewery or their own pub or whatever. But I think if you hit the nail on the head, like at some point they'll either want to retire later down the line or, or yeah. in, I don't know, seven years time, whatever then they say, that's the natural kind of like life cycle of a, of a business before it kind of takes on new form and reinvents itself. You might get sick of it. You might be just like, you know, I've had enough of doing this like seven years now, you know, I've, my yeah. kids are starting to grow up. The mm. demands and pressures of life are different. Um, and I, I, again, I want everyone listening to this to hear me. I, I love micropubs. I love small businesses and enterprises. That's what I'm all about and Hot Forward's all about. But, you know, it's, it's, I think often there's quite a failure to see the, the long term and longevity, which is, I guess, why the more traditional type pub is enduring and has lasted for centuries. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, it's, it's almost like, thinking longer term how how can these small little businesses kind of become the new century long pub if that makes sense yeah it does it does and i don't think they can uh, of course there will be a sec <coughs> excuse me <coughs> there will be exceptions to that as well there will be the odd one which just is just perfect you know it'll just work and it'll, and it'll generate enough profit sustainable profit for the people who set it up to be able to sell it on and for the people to come in and take it on and then sell it on and sell it on the way pubs have worked really the way pubs ideally should work yeah yep the majority of pubs were well, sorry a substantial number of pubs until round about the, the advent of the pub codes in the mid late 90s when they were starting to do huge buying sprees thousands i don't know what the numbers are i don't think there's very good stats for this in britain at all Thousands of independent pubs were all over the country, a bit more like our, you know, rose-tinted specs idea of what pubs were like, and they were and they'd been running for centuries by by typically by a husband and wife buying a pub from a husband and wife, hmm. buying a business with a building as a pub, 
and then running it for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever, quite a long time sometimes, and then selling it on and selling it on and selling it on. And, you know, they survived sent, literally centuries, some of these pubs. Yep. Uh, that's, that's almost gone now. Yeah. It it's almost doesn't exist. And it's because of property values, it's because of pub companies getting involved, it's because of all kinds of other stuff. But the pub companies bought up thousands of those pubs from those retiring couples. You know, they, they bought thousands of them. I, I live in a village called Belford in Northumberland. It's a pub called the Black Swan here, which is this a, 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 one of those pubs. It was, it was, um, my parents moved to the village in 1980. And at that time, the Black Swan was run. It was, it was a free house run by a married couple. And at some point, I'd, I'd, I can't remember the dates, but at some point I was aware that, because I was trying to persuade my, I said I managed an iClub, and um, the chef was the first ever woman trained by Raymond Blanc. She and I were a couple, and we were up here staying with my parents, and I, I, we were aware that this pub was on the market then. And I was, we were saying, I, well, you know, what do you think? This, I mean, this would have been in the mid-'80s. What do you think? We maybe should buy that pub because it was 45,000 quid and uh, and turn it into a really, really good pub. And she was like, if you think I'm going to be behind a fucking oven for the rest of my life, you've got to... But anyway, um, so we didn't we didn't do it. And at some point after that, Jennings bought it, Jennings uh, yep. Brewery bought it, and then turned it into a tied lease pub. And then at some point after that, Marston's bought Jennings and screwed it down even more as a tied lease pub. And in the space of, I think, 10 years, it had, it was, sorry, I think it was 11 years and had 10 lessees. And so I would come up here occasionally during the year and go into that pub and see a new licensee, a new licensee, a new licensee. And I kind of, it, by, by the late 90s, I knew what was going on because I was a tied tenant myself by then. Mm. And I would talk to them and say, you know, how's it going? They were saying, oh, they won't put any money in. Or, There's a leak in the roof. It's not won't get repaired and, and all this kind of stuff. And then eventually, Marston's ran it into, Sorry, it's just so depressing. So it used to be a really, really, really busy pub. And it gradually became a, just a run-down stinky boozer like all these other pubs around the country, whilst it was owned by a large brewer and pub company, Marston's, who essentially acquired it as a, as, a, as a piece of baggage on the back of buying a brewery, which I presume they were buying to close down, to expand their market share, whatever. You know, I, I don't know the details of all this, but you just know that they're up to no good. And because they had three other pubs in the area as well, the same thing happened to all of them. And um, and uh, yes, so the story of this pub then ended up about 2013, 2014, something like that, with Marston's letting it on a TMA, temporary management assignment, which is just basically peppercorn rent, some guys in there trading it whilst it's on the market, with the market on the, with the field on the market for years, guy called Nigel the fucking legend he used to have a big t-shirt Nigel the fucking legend um, and, and Nigel ran it almost as a hermit whilst it was being marketed and eventually a guy from eventually a property developer bought it and subsequently leased it to a couple who now so it's free of tie it's been refurbished to an extent over a number of years and it's run by a couple called uh, Richard and uh, Jane and they do a great job and it's a really really busy pub again now, for about 12, 15 years, it was in the doldrums because it was screwed up by this this unhealthy uh, relationship between the pubco and the tenants. Who And the pubco is making money out of it all the time. The village loses out all the time because they get the shit pub. And then by the, by the vagaries of chance, 
it ends up being a fairly decent pub again, and and it's really busy, and it and it kind of proves the whole cycle. Um, and this is a village which wouldn't. It's not. It, it wouldn't support a micropub. It's not yeah. big enough to support a micropub. I think that's really interesting because my in-laws live in a small village just outside Stamford near Peterborough. Mm-hmm. And there's there's one local pub in this village, and it's it's a um, it's a pubco pub. I, I won't name the the brewery that I own the pub, but it's it's horrendous. And what everything you just said about different landlords and all the rest of it, tenants yeah. there, you know, you see it every time we go visit. It seems like there's it's under new management, new menu, and all the rest of it. I mean, me and my wife just stopped going in years ago because it's so yeah. bad. The beer quality is awful. You have to walk. You have to walk to the next village. Which are a couple of miles away to get a decent pint. Um, yeah. Whereas I guess if, if you live in a metropolitan area like I do, you know you, you tend not to think of it so much because there's there are good pubs, free houses on so many corners, and then you got obviously micro pubs and all the rest of it. Yeah. And something struck me said earlier about um, you know these Victorian buildings that had all these different rooms in function rooms and things and. Um, there's a pub not too far from here um owned by a brewery that i work with uh, near a cemetery and <laughs> the amount of times I'll, I'll go and swing by and it'd be like oh we'll have to, we'll have to go meet up here because there's a wake on <laughs> you know but it's you know it illustrates the point that actually the these pubs are hubs of um life and yeah. vitality oh, well in this instance death as well um, yeah, that's all key, key to it i mean how can we protect this social heritage and these traditions and how, how can we invest in pubs? Right. I think the, the, the only way this can possibly change, right. So the, uh, the inevitability is that pubs are, are going. So whilst we're talking about this, there is still this large number of pubs that are owned by large corporates that kind of do a vaguely good job. I mean, they're, they're all right. You know, the Mitchells and Butlers and so on, they're vaguely all right, but they, they're not attuned to local conditions generally they're not they don't they don't fulfill the cradle to grave philosophy of pubs by and large mm-hmm. and um which is what makes pubs unique culturally here to anywhere else, against anywhere else in the world and why they're envied worldwide right so the, what is lacking in this pub sector is a pub company that runs pubs for the right reasons it's as simple as that. Mm. Now, the problem with that is I've, I've discovered, because, I, you know, it sounds grandiose. I know, I know how to change it, but changing it involves capital and raising capital in this reality that, that we live within, which is why this reality of the coronavirus is very interesting. The reality we live within is that um, my summary of the problem and, and the solution is that there needs to be a commercial pub company that's set up for the right reasons to run to, to run pubs for the right reasons to buy own operate functioning pubs for the right reasons which is to provide cradle to grave entertainment service to communities um, and that needs to reflect everything that goes on in the contemporary society that we, that we live in. So pubs need to be relevant. Now, the problem with that is that why would any normal, if you, inverted commas, you, you know, on, on, the, on the screen, capitalist company want to do that? Because that, oh, that's all, you know, 
you fucking well can't make money out of doing that. And that's all pinko, libtard, snowflake, um, <laughs> naive stuff. Now, it's not. It's only. It is only. It's only liberal. Uh, it's only naive. In the context of the conditions that we find ourselves in with the pub sector as it is, <clears throat> which is largely, again, there are always exceptions, but largely we have an, ex- an entirely extractive business model operating the pub sector, which is designed, and whether it's the managed pub sector or whether it's the, the tied pub sector or large, some considerable parts of the free of tied pub sector, because there are pub companies like Wellington that lease free of tied pubs, that were, their motivation is to extract, extract as much profit out of the property as possible, irrespective of sustainability of that profitable extraction. And the pub companies get away with it, the, the tied pub companies manage to get away with it because there are so many pubs. And we don't know, when I say we, you know, the body, the body of the population, although we're learning to be alert to this now, for 30 years we haven't been alert to it, because the the pubs go, they go, they go, they go, and it takes a long time for for there to be no pubs left. Um, All those pub companies succeed, even though they're failing. The idea is that pub companies, chief executive of pubcos, make bonuses based upon the financial performance of their business when every year they're shedding pubs so they're reducing the number of pubs that they can make revenue out of and make profit out of all the time but they manage to concoct a reality which is rewarding them for the failure of their business model i don't know whether i described that very well so if you look at punch pubs and enterprise say broadly 10 years ago they each were around about seven or eight thousand pubs mm. Enterprise, I think, I've lost track of the figure. I used to be really on top of the figures. I've just lost track of it all now because I can't be bothered because I didn't think it would go on this long. Enterprise is roughly, EI group is roughly 5,000. And they've they've split up into different models within that 5,000 because they've got managed pubs now as well. They've changed their business modus operandi. And the punch is down to something like, what, 1,500, 2,000, something like that. I can't remember now. Well, it's Heineken, um, isn't it, now? Uh, it's on, it's Heineken, Heineken bought, bought a load of them. Yeah. There's still punch. There's still a rumpet punch. Right. That's Patron, right? I, 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 you, punch and Patron may be the same one now, actually. I may have missed that one. Where did, what happened to all these other pubs? What happened to the, the say, roughly 16,000 pubs 10 years ago? Now there's 7,000. What? Where, where did where did they go? They, they became parts of uh, Hawthorne Leisure, New River Retail. There's a whole bunch of these pub companies, inverted commas, that are not. They are retail asset conversion specialists who buy pubs and convert them into alternative retail. Or the, It's all about maximizing. It's all about extracting profit. It's all yep. about extracting the maximum amount of value out of the thing that they buy and own with, whilst putting the least amount back in or, or in in the first place. And it's counterintuitive to that worldview that you would set up a pub company which was designed to be regenerative, where you buy these assets and invest in them and make them into busy businesses again and then use the profit that's generated by the increased activity within each unit 
to supplement or to generate your long-term sustainable profit. And the way the pub industry has turned into, what the pub industry has turned into in the last 20 years is a thing which is, well, one day when there are no pubs left, when, when there are no pubs in the horizon, we'll, we'll start worrying about this. In the meantime, this all works. So I, and I've, None of it makes any sense. So, and, and sorry, and we live in a world where if it's called a pub company, people think, well, it must be a pub company. But it's not a pub company. It's a retail asset conversion specialist. That's what it is. Mm. And of course, then you can be contradicted and be told, well, actually, no, but Mitchells and Butlers genuinely is a pub company, although they've got Sizzlers and they've got Carvery and whatever. And you can say that um, Weatherspoons is a pub company and you can say that, of course, there are genuine genuine pub companies amongst all of this who are there to make money out of running pubs but they do it in a in a in a soulless way well i guess it's you know what what you're describing in the ideal world is is a company that puts people before profits because it's essentially that's that's what the pub is meant to be it's meant it's meant to be a thing that serves people and where people gather and congregate and I i think it's it's interesting to see how the future will pan out, particularly at the moment where pubs have been, at the time of recording this, pubs have been ordered to close and they're not open. Um, there's a lot of questions as to will, will some of those pubs reopen their doors? You know, what, what what's going to happen? A lot of them won't. And, well, that's, that's the fear, isn't it? Um, but I, what I hope comes out of this whole season that we're in is that actually that there's a shaking and disruption of global society, but yeah. unless we, within our more immediate setting within Great Britain, um, you know, there's there's a shaking, an awakening that occurs in people where, you, you know, when your health is on the line or your family's health and well-being, you know, it, all of a sudden, all the kind of um, crap that doesn't really matter sort of fades away doesn't it no, you know it's, yeah. it's that analogy isn't it no one's ever on their deathbed and is like I just wish I spent more time in the office you know you, you think about the things that actually matter well my, actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um, you know my, my hope is for the British pub out of all this and for pe- and, and I guess just for society in general it's, it's people start to look at things like what really matters in life and actually when those doors do open again and the curtains are drawn back by the landlord um you know people start to realize it's 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 not about profiteering it's it's about it's about people and and because we we've had a privilege i.e. going to the pub for a pint or or socializing you know even in the great outdoors that has been removed from us yeah and all of a sudden i i really hope people appreciate those small things in life so much more so that they want to go and spend their money in an independent pub they want to um spend their time you know together in somewhere that really matters to them i mean how do you how do you see it sort of panning out yeah well you've got an interesting point independent pub what is an independent pub in principle the twenty thousand tide pubs are independent pubs and again to generalize because I know some of them are award-winning and some of them are fantastic, but to generalise, they're not very good. Mm. And you know, in a, in a theoretical way, they're independent, but in practice, they're all tied to these large behemoth pub companies who are extracting loads of profit out of them and making the lives of the tenants misery, right? And because an independent pub, I think, 
is the pub of yore that we hold in our cultural consciousness, which is that lovely place that, that you know, the moon over water and all that kind of stuff, and uh, or moon underwater, whatever. You know, those those pubs do exist. And when you go into one, you never forget it. You know, mm. and my thesis is that it's possible to make large numbers of pubs like that relatively easily. You need capital, right? Raising the capital is a big problem because there's a sticking point about what capital needs to be used to do. And it seems that when it comes to pubs, the easiest way of using capital to get the most out of it is just to fuck pubs, basically. Mm. That's what it's about. It's about it's completely counterintuitive to what it should be about. If you have a pub company which is responsibly husbanding pubs and has the right kind of capital to do that, it will involve training. It will involve professionalism. It will involve looking at every pub's hinterland customer base and making sure that it's providing the kind of things that those customers want. And that the economy of scale of, a, of an organization that, were, that had national reach, which was a pub company with national reach and was operated like this, would be non-branded. Its constitution would be to ensure that the embodiment of the pub of yore was continued for future generations, for now and for future generations. And uh, and that would mean pubs would be allowed to be idiosyncratic and not branded and they would be different and everyone. But the core thing that brings them together would be high standards of governance, high standards of product, uh, local regional produce, sustainable supply chains, stuff which are relevant to the global conversation about climate change, um, refurbishments which were low environmental impact, all kinds of things which are very, very difficult to afford to do by an individual publican or couple, or, yeah, however that pans out, because it's quite expensive to do that kind of stuff mm. on a pub-by-pub -pub basis or to justify it on a pub-by-pub -pub basis. But in a corporate level, it's just part of the business plan. And you know that when you turn these pubs from um, sadly run down, underperforming uh, public houses that have, that have lacked substantial refurbishment for 30 or 40 years uh, into contemporary pubs that are, again, purpose-built, that serve all the functions the local community need to socialise Cradle Grave in and to be a really genuine focus of the community, um, they will be busy. They will work. Yeah. And uh, and it's all about the pub is about the people. The fact is, if you make a pub attract people, it'll make profit anyway. But what the public company, companies do is attract publicans, to, to, sorry, prospective publicans to run a business for themselves under the story that they can make a great life out of running a pub whilst looking after the pub for the pub company but the reality is you can't, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You can't make a viable, successful business that's sustainable easily or readily out of not investing any money in it. Yeah. I guess my reflection on that is it's almost like what should happen is This, this, this is what I want to say. It's kind of like I don't want to call it a franchise because, like that, then 
gives you the imagery of McDonald's or a Starbucks or a Costa Coffee or, or something else, which again, and it just it just the the the, the think, cycle continues. That, yeah. But I, I it's almost like what needs to be franchised is the set of values. Because yeah. I think if if pubs have got full autonomy to, to do what they want, in some ways they're only gonna be as good as the people running them. Yeah. And they're gonna run on the set of values that those people have. So you might have one publican who runs a pub who's got a really high value on making sure that their lines are really clean and, and they pay attention to that kind of beer quality detail. Yeah. But then you might have got another publican who, you know, isn't as interested in that, but wants to make their branding look amazing, you know? Um, and so it's, it's like, how do you correlate the, the values of this? This is what these types, this like, a pub company you know that an ethical you know wholesome pub company in mm. in a, the most holistic sense of the word like how, how do you kind of give that autonomy while keep keeping those values and i guess that's where you'd have to franchise values almost but values yeah. are very hard things to instill in other people because everyone's individual <laughs> and they've got their own <laughs> values that are sort of shaped by their worldview so i, I can see you know, um, it it sounds wonderful. You know, I just, I just, I can't. There are various ways of running pubs and running pub companies, and uh, so what, what, what I envisage is that there would be right. The franchise model is you can't you can't have a franchise model without having exemplary businesses that the franchise is 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 is, is, is you know. Is mimicking mm. or, or the franchises. Yeah, here, here are the model businesses that the franchise will emulate. Yeah, so you have a managed, you set up a managed pub company. Forget how the capital's raised for the moment. You set up a managed pub company with say eight or ten million quid, and you buy twelve pubs around the country, and you instill all those values, the training, and all the rest of it in those pubs, and you prove it all works. Um, and then you've got a model which can be franchised out. Now. An interesting thing about this is it's the values you're franchising out. It is you have minimum standards. So, because if you if, if every pub around the country that you're franchising, franchise, how would you do it? The the pub company at this level would have a, you would have a managed pub company like Weatherspoons with ethics and attitude and union mm. <laughs> at a union, but. Shopping local, buying local, and all the rest of it, and, and individual pubs without branding, um, and its own training program, and, and a whole sort of interesting, uh, whole, uh, whole holistic stuff going on within that pub company. And then the pub company would then buy pubs that it knew from its experience. You know, it's a it's a it's, a, it's an entity uh, would work in those communities that the pubs are in, and then could offer them to lease to publicans who met the standards and were prepared to buy into the the model that, that's, that's that's proven so they would be separate but they would be franchised and what they would be franch what what they would be there would be a form of franchise it would you know it wouldn't be it couldn't be a mcdonald's who wouldn't be supplying them with chips necessarily yeah do you know what i mean mm. but it'd be supplying uh, the wherewithal to run a sound business to high standards of uh, quality and service, 
and provide training and backup and all the rest of the stuff that would be needed in order to do that. Um, and then publicans who in, say, say, for example, coronavirus, what, what's it called? Post-coronavirus, you know, once this is over, there is, there's already a lot of pubs on the market. There's already a lot of really nice looking pubs on the market all over the country that no one's buying. Mm. Um, there's going to be a lot more after this, irrespective of whether they're from Tide pub com, com, companies going down the panel, Tide tenants going down the panel, whatever. There's inevitably there's going to be a shakeup, which means there's more. There's going to be loads and loads of decent pubs, de- decent raw material in pubs in the middle of communities that could be turned into really great pubs. Do you think that people's drinking habits are going to change as a result of what's happening at the moment? I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I can't, I can't, it, 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 of course, it's inevitable, isn't it? Some, some, many people's, maybe some people will never go to the pub again. But we are, so, we are a social species and that's unavoidable. We want to go out. People who don't go to the pub don't agree with that. Do <laughs> hmm. so, you know this is the funny thing about the pub sector? You can't talk about the pub sector in any way which makes overall sense to everybody because there's so many nuanced different aspects to it all, the whole thing. Because there are people who spend their entire lives happily without ever setting foot in a pub. You know, I know, I know quite a few people who don't go to pubs because they they don't go to pubs and they never have done because they hate pubs because typically, and I'm, I'm not being weird and dismissive of this because it's real, typically they had a dad who was a violent alcoholic mm. who went to the pub all the time. And and yes, you know, their, their, their firm belief, their, their firm belief is, I know several people like that, their firm belief is that pubs are fucking shitholes, desperate places that only evil people go to or the, the, or they will make them into evil people and you can't shake you can't shake them from the belief and say well actually most pubs maintain christian values <laughs> i i i really believe that i i can eulogize about pubs all the time proper well-run pubs that are um, run responsibly professionally are secular places of worship you know, they're places where people who don't necessarily have to have faith can go to and get sustenance. And it doesn't have to be revolving around alcohol at all. Um, the sustenance, the true sustaining value of pubs is, as I touched on earlier, which is, a, you know, it's a bit of a slogan. It, the people make, it's the people who make the pub. It's about convening with other people in convivial surroundings that are sympathetic to good quality conversation. Mm. Um, and empathy that's what it's about and provide that's what that's the 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 buzz about good pubs is that if you get if you if you can attract the if you can if you can provide an environment and there's huge ranges of ways of do providing that environment um that encourages that kind of feeling when you go in as a customer you can stay there all night and have have a glass of soda water or a cup of tea and have a fantastic time with people who are drinking socially and never get out of hand, and there's there's nothing else like it. You know, there there just is nothing like it. What what's very interesting about now, from two weeks ago, is that a, a country in lockdown means that people have got time on their hands for the first time. You know, society is very busy. Small brewers, publicans are on hamster wheels all the time, working like crazy, trying to do their job, trying to do their business, 
And if they have got creative ideas outside of the thing they've got to focus on, they generally don't have time to focus on those creative ideas because they don't, because it's the way the way the world, the way life works. And it, what what interested me about Ian Fossard? Now, what what struck me about that about that um, conversation was that there was quite a lot of. I was surprised about Ian's. In, I, I was I was a bit surprised that Ian was so. Uh, candid about the relationship with Thai pub companies because I thought he was being quite, he wasn't being critical, he was just describing it as I kind of see it as well. And I thought, because he's the chair of CEBRA, isn't he? Uh, Is yeah, that, national uh, chair, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, you know, no, I I, I think it's fair, I think it's fair to say, right, I, I've got a reputation for being, I, I'm very honest, right? I don't want to, <clears throat> I know my, I knew Mike Benner quite well when he was chair of the uh, chief executive of Campaign for Elel. I knew a guy called Jonathan Mayo quite well then because I was involved in in founding a thing called the Fairpine Campaign in 2008, which went, which 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 ended up lobbying the government to end the beer tie. Now my thesis and the two or two or three other people's thesis at the time, as Thai publicans, was that the, the beer tie is not fit for purpose. Uh, it will be used to abuse tenants no matter what if it's allowed to exist. There's no way of legislating against it. Remove the beer tie, end of the problem. And we were told by Campaign Free Lail, as a group, they, as a group with us, that they would be interested in working with us because because it, it appeared that we were the first people who ever approached Cameron and said, tide tenants are being abused. It's endemic. It's right across the industry. They had believed that it was all odd, rogue, area managers and odd tenants not they didn't think it was a blanket thing we we, we persuaded them with by giving them the evidence of hundreds of tenants that this is going on everywhere and all across all pub companies they said right okay your your campaign <coughs> is to end the beer tie now quite simply we can tell you this completely straight you'll get nowhere if you stick to that because it's too radical um because it will take in the family brewers and the government will not do anything that risks the future of the family brewers because they're all they're all they've all got ties, right? Mm. And we were like, there was about there was about eight, seven or eight of us involved at the beginning, right? We were like, fuck them, because to be between you and me and the audience, right? Some of the family brewers are awful when it comes to their tie tenants; they treat them really badly. And um, anyway, that's a separate discussion. But we ended up getting into this agreement where we would say, okay, if, if there's a de minimis of 500, so the, the, the beer tie would be legislated against or restricted, the, the practices of the tie would be restricted for all pub-owning companies. We, we weren't allowed to call them pub codes. Pub-owning company, companies, this, this was to distinguish them from brewers, mm. the, the brewers with ties and the pub-owning companies with ties. So it would mean the Green King and Marston's, for example, and Scotch Newcastle at the time, who had big brewing wings and retail pubs themselves, but also had tied pubs, which were separate from the brewing, but they were, they were, they were, they were not managed, they were leased, right? We, they wanted to define this pub company, pub owning companies that had more than 500 pubs that were tied to oblige the tenants to buy beer, the legislation would go against them and that provide an umbrella protection for all the family brewers because the family brewers 
none of them, none of them had more than 500 pubs. So we ended up agreeing to that, and it was a mistake. We should have just gone for the tie. It was a terrible mistake, because what happened over the next 10 years is that it all got into discussions at every level. You can imagine between Campaign for Europe, government, all the other organisations, CBA, everybody else. How do you legislate against the companies that own more than 500 pubs without somehow affecting the others and all the rest of it? And we ended up spending 10 years fannying around getting nowhere, basically. And I, and we, you know, we learned that when you go into politics, you get headed off at the pass like that. Is if you keep it simple, keep it direct. If you go, the beer tie is in an insupportable business construct in the 21st century. It's just there's no excuse for it to be in existence, mm. other than I'm going to contradict myself. Other than if you are a brewer and you buy a pub and you manage the pub and you sell your beer through it, why shouldn't that be tied? You're paying everybody, you're looking after everybody, it's your product, that's fine. But that's entirely different to the way the tie is used by and large, right? And um, anyway, here we are uh, in many years down the line. I've got even what year it is now, 2020, in 2020, with all this madness going on with the pub code. So the, in 2016, the pub's code came into effect, right? Took, it took the best part of 10 years to get this legislation into, into place. And then the pub companies, but by, incidentally, by, the, by, by about 2014, I'd given up on all this. I just thought it's a waste of time. I've got friends that I love them. They're, they're much more dogged than I am, I, who, who, who pushed the legislation through. But I realised at some point that there's no point because the, no matter how robust the legislation is, the pub codes will find a way around it. And they do. The, enterprise inns have changed their business. We, you know, we. I've met publicans. I've met Thai, Thai publicans who are almost like, "Fuck you, mate! You fucked up my my life," because I've got a section twenty five notice from the pub committee, which is taking it back at the end of lease. Mm. I was going to renew my lease. Can't do it now because you, like that, you know, it's it, and, and it's and it's because the pub committees are just. Uh, they're, 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 they're sociopathic entities that are designed to maximise profit. It, that, that's all it is. They're, they're no more than that. They're not interested in purpose, they're not interested in culture, heritage, people, nothing. They're interested in making money in the easiest way possible with the least amount of investment. And it, that's it. That's what they're about. And that I guess that brings us full circle. I mean, it's, it's, and it is a vicious cycle, isn't it? And... Um... You know, and, and sorry, sorry, Nick, just to interrupt, right? And in all of that, what they've done is they keep all the small brewers out of their pubs, which means the small brewers are supplying beer to a, a, a small sector section of the market. The more brewers that come into that market, the more competitive it becomes. And you know, that that's that's a that's another thing that that as we were saying earlier, right? There are like yourself, there are high-quality brewers out there who've packed it in because they can't make a living, because you've got loads of people coming in new into the market, new into the brewing market, saying, "Wow, I love, I love brew, I love beer. I'm going to 
you want to invest my pension or whatever, my redundancy money, whatever. And uh, I'm going to set up a brewery, and then they then they sell their they sell their casks into the local pubs that they can sell beer to at 47 quid a cask, 50 quid a cask. And people who've been doing it for 10 or 15 years get undercut, not because they're not not on quality, purely on price. Mm. I, I mean, am I wrong? Am I right? I'm wrong. No, no, you you're definitely right. Yeah. Um. But you know, it's I guess as um we've ascertained in this conversation, and and as the listeners will <laughs> know that I've picked up by now. It's such a complicated issue, mm. and ultimately, like I say, when you brought it full circle, you've you've hit the nail on the head. That effectively, it's it's the profiteering mindset of large companies that always squeeze and squash out the little guy. And you know, I guess the last question then, in light of everything we've been talking about, is where is the hope for the British pub? Another good question. I think the hope is, well, given given that there is time to think now, when there's, there's time to take stock of what's been going on over the last t- twenty years, excuse me, and where where the industry's come to right now, right? I, th- I think the, the coronavirus is a very, of course, it's punctuated everything, but it also happens to be punctuating a period in which is proven that legislation is not restricting the activities of the pub companies from being profiteering. Uh, the pub, the beer revolution, is in. I think it's not just in danger. The beer revolution is in danger of it, it's it's happening. It's 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 the tide is turning. Pub, lots of brewers are going to go out of business, not not because of coronavirus, but because of competition within mm. the sector. The, the, right, I I know the large pub, the large brewers are prepared to let around six to seven percent of the market. In volume, go to small brewers. They're not. They're not bothered, and they'll keep it like that, and they'll 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 restrict it even more if they can because it doesn't matter to them. That that they they have this global figure. They're, they're a cartel. So anyway, the the only way round this is to take stock of the situation we've got through social media, conversations like this um, directly, and link brewers, publicans. And vision, so visionaries together towards setting up a new kind of pub company that will take advantage of this really difficult time, and uh, <clears throat> and the fact that take advantage of the fact that there's loads of pubs out there that have got loads of potential if they're invested in properly, um, and raises a lot of capital through a, an entirely different kind of ownership structure from anything which exists now. There, there are a lot we we haven't touched at all on community pubs. There are, there are quite a lot of uh, cooperatively uh, constituted community pubs now owned by members of the community. You know, there's loads of them around. There's, there's about up to a hundred in the country overall. Plunker Foundation. Do you know the Plunker Foundation? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Plunker Foundation is the kind of um, the leader in all of this, um, and so say roughly around the country, there's around a hundred pubs which are owned by the community. Uh, and least, or some of them are directly managed by the community, but at least as free of time pubs to individuals to run with community objectives in place, and um, and they they largely come about as a result of a community being concerned that their local pub is going to be sold and it'll become a house or whatever, you know, development land, 
they got together and they've they've had it listed as an asset of community value. It's subsequently gone on the market. They've ended up buying it. Now it's a really, really tortured, complicated, difficult process. Most 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 communities don't succeed, but you don't hear about them. Um, but the ones that do succeed are really happy because they've saved their pub and they've they've got their secular social meeting space in perpetuity and all the rest of it. And their values are entirely different from the values of the general private equity driven asset stripping vehicle we've been touching on. And uh, I think there's a, there is a huge future to scale that up by having a multi-stakeholder owned pub company. So that's basically a commercial pub company that's constituted to be able to align the interests of three different types of members who would be owners of it. And they would be the staff, the customers and the suppliers. And they form a cooperative, which is a multi-stakeholder cooperative, the, the like of which doesn't exist at the moment. It's not a problem, all this. It, 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 these do exist in the world outside of Britain. We're a little bit slow on the uptake on multi-stakeholder stuff. Um, but it'll work around pubs because pubs, the, sustainable, the future sustainability of pubs is of great interest to all three categories of member of, of, of potential members of the ownership of this entity of this business, because the suppliers, we're talking about local and regional suppliers, not globals, who want to supply to pubs in their local area. So food, drink, and so on suppliers, um, butchers, whatever, and then customers. They want their pub to survive, and staff. They want to be employed like a John Lewis, in. A respectable business where they can get training, mm. learn professional standards, and feel proud about their job. And it's not just a casual thing. It can be used as a casual thing, as a stepping on to other stuff. But basically, you have a pub company set up that constituted that way, which has enough capital to be able to be national reach. Um, it can work, and then that it, 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 it not can work. It will work. Raising the capital is the issue. So the way the way to raise the capital. Is I think there are enough people in Britain now who understand the problems that we've been touching on in this discussion who will be prepared with a bit of explanation. It doesn't need to be, you know, described in writing, so it's a little bit less um, amorphous than the conversation. So the aims and objectives of the company are laid out. Um, we set up a something along the lines of a people's pub fund, where you invite people to subscribe to, say, the way they do to Beer 52 or various other, um, I'm not trying to advertise, I can't think of the names, there are names of various, you know, Naked Wines, I subscribe to Naked Wines and, and Beer 52. You just put 20 quid a month in, and then this stuff arrives. So this would be, you encourage hundreds of thousands of people to put 10, 15, 20 quid a month in to a fund which would raise capital to buy freehold pubs, with the intention of refurbishing them to high environmental standards, fossil fuel free refurbishments, with the aim of then turning those into a managed pub company where the staff get looked after properly, where all the suppliers are dealt with fairly, where the customers get a fair price, the customers can have a membership card and the staff are part owners and all the rest of it. It all just wraps in together like that. And the, the, the deal is 
everyone's treated fairly and it's it's all about the people or what make the pub and it's all these various categories of people that make the pub and I can't really imagine that working so straightforwardly around any other form of retail entity mm. but it's and, it, and it's not designed it's not meant to be you know as a proposition it's not meant to be airy fairy or anything like that it's meant to be a commercial proposition every pub's got to make money so typically in the in the, out, in the in the real world out there that I'm describing a, an ideal world not not the real world in the real world out there a pub company will rentalize a property on the it could be a seaside town pub or it could be a rural pub or wherever some pubs are highly seasonal some are highly seasonal so that in the winter they're dead and the summer they're incredibly busy some are seasonal the other way around so they're really busy in the winter and they're very quiet in the summer right for all sorts of reasons you know don't have a garden don't have a patio whatever whatever now those pubs get rented on the assumption that they're busy like that all year round mm. and that and and you you have tenants making profit in the summer where the, all the figures stack up the rent suits the turnover and all the rest of it but in the winter all they're doing is battening down the hatches trying to survive to the next year now if you've got it's and it is unsustainable and that's because the pub companies have said you should be able to do this all year long your average should be 16 grand a week when your when your peak is is 16 grand a week you know that's the way they work if you've got a pub company that does this you can you know you know these things are going on and you can do you can ameliorate the high season in one place against the low season in another, and you can offer young people who agree great. It, you know, everyone will do it. The opportunity to, to, to move from pub to pub, to staff when the staff are needed here, to staff when the staff are needed there, and then you don't have licensees in the terrible position where they've got to lay, lay people off every season and hire them and DRR contracts and all the rest of it. All these things can be managed with a, with a company that's got the scale and the wherewithal to do it, which cannot possibly happen by, with individuals running. You know, it's about looking at the big picture and understanding how commerce operates, how pubs operate, how people operate, and making financial sense out of that in a, in a very commercial, canny way. And it's not it's and it's not about branding and it's not about homogeneity. It's all about individuality, local. It's all about um, you know difference. It's all about diversity, difference, and all the rest of it. Mm. Now, you say that in the conventional market, people say, "Oh, you're naive. It'll never work." Well, no, it's because you're not used to doing any work. You're not used to actually applying thought, science, evidence to your business. You just want to send a bunch of area managers around to make sure that no one's buying out a tie. Well, power to the people, by the sounds of it, and, and it's, it de- definitely sounds to, to really bring it full circle from the start of the episode with the the the, the online beers. It does sound like a utopian future. But um, mate, yeah. th- thank you for being on the the podcast today. How how can people connect with you, Mark? So uh, if they want to find out more, yeah, we'll we'll be um oh how do you, yeah, people's pub partnership. There's right there there is a website. It's it's the People's Pub Partnership. If anybody looks at that, if anyone goes to the website, they'll see it was made several years ago. And it needs... <laughs> I'm living on carer's allowance at the moment, looking after my dad. But no, all the ideas are there. Um, the, and um, the, the other one is hashtag Great British Pubco Scam. Right? Hashtag Great British Pubco Scam. That, you'll find me on that, or J Mark Dodds. 
Don't imagine that, a real pub company, a pub company that invests in pubs. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Forward podcast this week. Don't forget, we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at hotforwardbeers. Until next time, cheers. Hey,